Let's stand together, and uh, we are looking at our fourth installment of um, the Ten Words, and today our topic is the fame of his name. We only have one verse, and we're going to read it together, and this is what it says on the count of three. One, two, three. You take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the, For the Lord, Lord will not, not hold him guiltless who takes, who takes his, his name, name in, vain. in vain. That's it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your faithfulness in our lives, for your generosity, for your extravagant love that you have demonstrated in Jesus, and for the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit that takes everything that you've accomplished in Jesus and makes it possible, available, and applicable to our lives. And so we ask now that your spirit would help us to have a voice to speak, ears to hear, minds to comprehend, hearts to understand, but particularly when we leave this place, that we'll go out into our uh, city, our communities, our streets, our neighborhoods, our homes, our relationships, where we buy and get our services, that you would help us to live out what it means to be devoted followers of Jesus Christ. We love you, we praise you, and thank you. In Christ's name, amen. Why don't you be seated? So, ten words, the fame of his name. Now, before we get started, there's a couple things I want to say. Is that I think that the third commandment is probably one of the hardest commandments to keep and not to break. I think there are other commands that are difficult. I think the one next week that we'll look at, the Sabbath, is difficult for us to keep because um, we are generally uh, don't take care of ourselves as we should, and we'll get into that um, next week, and we don't take care of creation as we should, but that's next week. But the reason why I think the third commandment, not taking the Lord's name in vain or misusing the Lord's name, is because it's the hardest because of our tongues and our mouths. It is um, the one organ of our bodies that is indeed the hardest for us to control. And that is probably true for all of us and a problem for all of us and maybe some of us more than others. So, here's what I want to say to you. If you feel con conflicted, if you feel uneasy, if you feel uncomfortable or you feel guilty, etc., 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 it's okay. Because we are all in good company together. And the key, of course, is to be self-aware. Because I believe as we are self-aware, then we can change and transformation can take place in our lives. Names are very unusual sometimes. Some of us just have normal names like Todd. But um, you know how names have, um, uh, have you know... Um, I'm coming to definitions, right? Uh, so, you know, Abigail means beautiful, right? Do you know what the name Todd means? Yeah, thanks. It means Todd. Welcome. <laughs> A little late, but you're here, and I'm glad to hear of it. It means fox. <laughs> Don't even go there. I'm very fragile and very insecure. And the text that bothers me in the Bible, many texts in the Bible bother me, the one that bothers me the most is this, where Jesus says to Herod, go tell that fox. I'm just saying. Now, unusual names. Who is the person that you know who has the most unusual name that you've ever heard? 
I want you to tell it to your neighbor. Most unusual name that you have ever heard of, of somebody you know. Who is it? And what is the name? Just tell somebody next to you. One name is not that hard, folks. I like the name Odeby. My mother had a thing with names. My full name, as you know, is Todd. Actually, it's Headley Milton Todd. Headley Milton Todd Manuel. My brother's name is Ivan Ray Roy. My sister's name is Kay Darlene Milo. Do you any know Milo's? My sister Ruth is the only normal name. It's Ruth Cynthia. But I don't know, maybe, I don't know, like the parents, do we think about it when our kids get older, what are, their names are going to look like and sound like? Anyway, Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson says this, that the act of naming is something that occurs early in everyone's life and has enormous significance. We are named. At our birth, we are named, not numbered. The name is that part of speech by which we are recognized as persons. We are not classified as a species of animal. We are not labeled as a compound of chemicals. We are not assessed for our economic potential and given a cash value. We are named. And then he adds, what we are named is not as significant as that we are named. To be named. Rather than to be numbered, tells us it humanizes us, it personalizes us, it individualizes who we are. Now, most of us give serious thought to the names that we give our children. Some people, they name their children after famous people, you know, sports players or people in popular culture. Um, some of us name our children after family members. And others of us, we name our children uh, in such a way as to reflect a certain character that we think they may have or that we hope they will have. It's in light of that that we are given the third word of the ten words of the Ten Commandments where God says to Moses, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, when it comes to God, what his name is, is significant because it tells us about God's self-revelation. How do we get to know each other? We get to know each other by self-revelation, by self-disclosure. The same is true with God. We get to know God by his self-revelation. Now, God is simultaneously not hard to get to know, but he is also hard to get to know. He's not hard to get to know because God has revealed himself, he has shown himself, he has made himself known. But God is also hard to get to know because he is so infinitely complex. 
There's two words that we use for God's self-revelation, and they are general revelation and special revelation. General revelation is simply understood as this, that in all of us human beings, there is an inbuilt understanding, awareness of the existence of God. By general revelation, we look at Psalm 19, and we see that even nature itself discloses who God is, that the nature declares the glory of God, and Human reasoning and rationale also help us to understand that there is a God and a little bit about who he is. But there's also what we call special revelation where God reveals himself in specific ways, specific ways. The Bible, for example, through supernatural, through miracles, through dreams and and other ways in which God does that special revelation. But God also makes himself known through his name. God's name tells us about God's very nature and being. Now, we can't, of course, get the full scope of the third commandment, this third word from the Ten Commandments, without looking at what God's names represent. And so the name of God reveals to us who he is, and this is a list of the, some of the names of God that he is Elohim, which is, means the great God or the mighty and strong God. El Shaddai means the all-sufficient one. Adonai means Lord and Master. And Jehovah means the self-existent one. And of course, there are other compound names that give us an idea and understanding about who God is, his being, and who he is as a person. But God places great value on his name. His name is not a designation, but a description of who he is. The name of God, in fact, is so holy to the Jews that the only time of year that the Jews actually say the name of God is on the Day of Atonement. When once a year the high priest blesses is the nation of Israel, and he blesses them in the name of God. When we're in Israel, we went to a, a place where uh, there was a, um, a scribe who was writing out a scroll. And every time, in writing out the Old Testament scroll, and every time the scribe came to the name of God, he left a, left a blank. And then he moved on. And at the end of writing the scroll, what they do is the scribes go through a process of washing and of purification. And then when that process of washing and purification has taken place, he goes then back to the scroll and then he writes in the name God in all of the spaces that he has left before. Because the name of God is so sacred to the Jewish people. But God's name also tells us about God's purpose. Over and over again in the Bible, we read the fact that God does things for his namesake. For example, in Exodus chapter 9, 16, we read of Pharaoh and it says this, for this reason I raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And again in 2 Samuel chapter 7, Verse 23, where it says, making himself a name and doing for them, talking about Israel, great and awesome things. That God does things for the fame of his name. But one of the issues that we have to process when we talk about this third word 
of the Ten Commandments is the exploitation of God's name, which is a violation of the Third Commandment. Now, the NIV says this about the text that we read at the beginning. It says, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. So we exploit God's name. We misuse or take his name in vain when we use it for personal agendas. And we have seen this from the religious, greedy religious hucksters in history. The most, one of the most famous, of course, is Johann Tetzel, who was a, a Dominican friar, and he started to sell indulgence for the dead so he could raise money to finish the St. Peter's Basilica. And he had a little jingle, a little advertisement that went like this. As soon as the money in the coffers ring, the souls from purgatory's fire springs. Little jingle. The Crusades. God wills it. Colonialism. And we know that even with the atrocity of the slave trade, we know that slave owners and slave traders did it in God's name and used the Bible to defend it. That's not what I find most grievous about the slave trade. Now, I know that we need to be very careful that we don't take 2019 and put it back in the turn of the 20th century and before that. But here's what I find most troubling about the slave trade. In God's name, I am a white male. If I were a white male at the turn of the 20th century or at the end of the 19th century, I would have also agreed that slavery was right. That's what I find most egregious about the slave trade. And most of us in this room and those watching online, we probably would have done the same thing, those of us who are white. The exploitation of God's name takes place when it's used for things that are less than what his name deserves. The the exploitation of God's name throughout history, of course, has caused tremendous damage to the cause of Christ. One of the things that uh, people who are uh, not Christians that throw up in the face of us Christians all the time is the slave trade and colonialism and the crusades and all of the death and stuff that were done in God's name that God had nothing to do with. It was personal agendas. But there's also this. We exploit God's name. We misuse. We take his name in vain when we use it in an empty an insincere matter. And that brings us to this, oaths and vows. Swearing an oath by God's name and breaking it is a misuse of God's name. In the ancient world, when two people, two families, two nations entered into a covenant, They would seal it by an oath, as we see in Genesis chapter 26, verse 31. However, as I understand the Bible, there were two things that were reality. The first one was that um, it was permissible for the Jewish people to swear an oath in God's name. But at the same time, it was not permissible for them to swear an oath in any other name or any other thing. 
And that's what it seems to say in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 12. But Jesus said these words. He, Jesus amended all that in the Sermon on the Mount when he wrote these words. He said these words. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old. Quoting Leviticus 19, 12, or 17, 12. You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. That's an important statement. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything else comes from the evil one. But we flippantly make oaths in a flippant way. I swear on my mother's grave. I don't think my mother would be glad to hear that this morning. I swear on a stack of Bibles. I swear to God, as God is my witness. And then there's this. The practice of taking an oath in a court of law comes out of the third commandment. Do you swear to the whole truth and nothing but the truth so? Help me God. To lie under oath is perjury. And perjury is a violation of the third command. Using God's name in such an empty, insincere matter is breaking the third commandment. And that brings us then to vows. This is why wedding vows are so important. This is why when we did the baby dedication this morning, we used the same pattern over and over again. And we use the same pattern when it comes to weddings. Do you know why? Well, first of all, repetition is a good thing. I often learn by repetition, as do you. But some of us, when we did the dedication for Bailey this morning, many of us recalled when we dedicated our own children. It's the same with baptism. When we go to a wedding, I mean, we look at the bride and we look at the groom and then we look at ourselves. And while the bride and the groom are exchanging their vows, we're remembering when we were the ones standing on this platform or a platform or wherever it is that we stood and did our vows. It's about keeping, sorry, it's about making and keeping vows. Now, I know that there's a level of uncomfortableness in the room, and that's okay. Just feel it, soak it up. It's okay to feel uncomfortable. But here's what Ecclesiastes says. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. That's a strong statement. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. God holds us to our vows. Our word is our bond. But we say, well, promises are made to be broken. Well, not in God's name and not in God's eyes. 
To break a promise is something that is of utmost seriousness to God. Making a vow and not following through is a serious offense. But there's also this. We also exploit God's name and misuse his name and take his name in vain when we profane the name. Now, I'm sure that you're paying attention, as I am paying attention, to our world. What do we make of the increased use of vulgarity and profanity in our culture? Arkant Hughes said this, he said, The demise of civility in everyday language is a fact of culture. Language has become increasingly vulgar and and irreverent both to man and to God, precisely because we have been, there has been a devaluation of both man and God. Let me read it again. The demise of civility in everyday language is a fact of culture. Language has become increasingly vulgar and uh, irreverent both to man and to God, precisely because there has been a devaluation of both man and God. And then Hughes goes on to tell this story about a comparison that took place between William Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar, and the playwright David Mamet's play called Glengarry Glen Ross. Never saw it. Both plays, Hughes says, deal with the subject of human greed and ambition. But both plays, or rather, and then he says, but they are 232 obscenities apart. And then tongue-in-cheek, he says this, Shakespeare managed to muddle through his way without a single blankety-blank, while Mamet managed 232 obscenities, 152 of which were his favorite vulgarity. So what do we make of the increased use of vulgarity and profanity in our culture? Now here's something I've noted. So I want you to put your seatbelt on, and I don't want you to email me about this because I'm not trying to shock you. I'm just trying to make a point. In 34 years of pastoral ministry, and 28 of those has been senior pastors, I have literally had hundreds of people in and out of my office for different reasons, and many of those for pastoral counseling. One of the things that I have noted in the last 10 years in pastoral ministry, as we, uh, 10, maybe 12, maybe 15 years, Barry in here is this, is the amount of times, now forgive me for this, the amount of times that the F word is used in my office is profound. Not by me, by the way. But by people who come to see me. Fifteen years ago, you would have never heard such a thing in a pastor's office. But it is a sign to me of the increased vulgarity and profanity in our culture. Profanity and the use of vulgar language. Somebody said, profanity is the linguistical crutch of the inarticulate. That's a mouthful, isn't it? We used to say it a little bit more simply. Swearing is the attempt of a weak mind trying to express itself. 
I think that's better. But listen to what Jesus said, which is better yet. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. When the name of Jesus or Christ or God is demeaned and degraded, it is profaning the name. When God's name is used as a curse, damning something or someone, it is a profaning of God's name. But so is this. Not many of us, most of us in this room and most of us watching online, would never think or dare take the Lord's name in vain by cursing. But what about when God's name is used as a filler for absent syntax? And you're saying, what in the world does that mean? It means this. When we have nothing else to say in a conversation and God's name becomes the filler because we're stuck for words or we don't know what to say. Oh, God. Oh, my God. Jeez. Holy smoke. Holy cow. These are all derivatives of profaning the name. By treating that which is holy as common is to profane the name. And by doing so, we violate the third commandment. So again, what does misusing and taking the Lord's name in vain mean? It means this. Treating something holy, God, as common, and using it in an empty, frivolous, and insincere way. But there's also this. We exploit God's name and misuse his name, and we take his name in vain by giving credit to another that belongs to God. Edith Schaefer said this a bunch of years ago. She said, to give God, to give God's praise to chance and to declare that everything we know in the world and that the universe came by accident is a sign of, is to sign chance to all of God's creation. And she goes on and says, it is an insult to his name as much as it would be an insult to box music and Michelangelo's statues to sign chance where the name of the composer or artist should be. Gerald Manley Hopkins' famous poem, God's Grandeur. The world is charged, he wrote, with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil. And it goes on. You see, here's the problem with evolution. And I know we all got different views on it. But here's the problem with the theory 
Now, I know that all of these people want us to think that it's fact. But here's the problem with theory of evolution and theories in general. Is the problem with theories is that they have a way of getting into action. And then our text says this. It talks about the result or the punishment is probably a better word, of the exploiting of God's name that everyone pays. It says in Exodus, the last part of our verse that we read says, for the Lord will not hold him or her guiltless who takes his name in vain. Everybody pays. Everybody pays. The punishment in this life involves blessing and cursing. The Bible tells us That in our tongues, in our mouths, is the power to bless and the power to curse. It is the power to give life and the power to send death. And if you're not sure, here's the biblical text. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. So... Men and women, young people, brothers and sisters, friends. When we speak ill to our spouse or ill about our spouse to somebody else, it is words of death. When we speak words of encouragement and truth and hope, it's words of life. Parents, I know those kids can drive us crazy. I once had uh, somebody say to me, a young couple, not in this church, of course, another church, uh, said to me, we're getting away for a week because we need to get away from the kids. And I felt like saying, yeah, and maybe they need to get away from you. I didn't say it, but I should have, but I didn't want to speak words of death. Got it? Parents... Words of life and death are in our tongues. Children, parents, when you speak to your parents, the words of life and death are in our tongues. That's the punishment in this life. The punishment in the next life is this, is that we're going to be judged by our own words. Jesus said this, Jesus said in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. But I want to bring you back to, um, to what Hughes says, that taking God's name in vain, misusing God's name is... We do it, and it's done because of the devaluation of both man and God in our society. So on the one hand, when we misuse God's name, we devalue God by bringing him down to a level that he does not deserve. It's an affront to God's person and God's character and God's power and God's majesty. But on the other hand, it also devalues us. Because God has made himself vulnerable to us. And because this awesome God whose name you and I are not even worthy to speak has become our heavenly father. 
And it is incomprehensible that we would slap such a one in the face. But there's more than that. When we, when you or I misuse or take the Lord's name in vain, it shows that we really do not understand who he is. Because if we really understood who he was, we would never violate the third command. More specifically, we would never violate the name of our wonderful God and Savior. So what should be our response? Well, first of all, I think that living in a culture that regularly ignores God and misuses his name, I think that we have to make every effort to revere his name. To make sure that for us that his name is vindicated. For the the atrocities that have been done to it and for the atrocities that have been done in it. In his name. Through praise. Personally. Privately. Publicly. Isaiah said these words, he says, And in that day you will say, Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. And in prayer. And this is our prayer. That the fame of his name will go out from our life. And that the fame of his name will go out from this place. So let's stand together and let's proclaim the name and let's respond. There's two Psalms that I want us to do a responsive reading in, Psalm 8 and Psalm 96. I'm going to read yellow and then you're going to respond with white and that, that I'm going to invite the musicians to come and as we process this. This is what it says. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field. Heavens and the fish of the sea whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then we come to Psalm 96, and it says this. O sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. 
Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the glory glory that's due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. His name. His name. Let me pray for you. Father, I am so thankful that you're a God of grace. And I'm so thankful that you're a God who gives forgiveness and shows mercy extravagantly. And Lord, your love over us is crazy-like. We don't understand it, but it's magnificent. And we give you praise and we give you thanks today that with you there is forgiveness of sins. So today, collectively, as a congregation, and individually. Father, forgive us when we have dishonored your name, when we have not been faithful, and we have misused your name, and we have taken your name in vain. Lord, we ask your forgiveness. But we also ask today for the help of the Holy Spirit to take control of our hearts and our minds and our tongues And Lord, out of this message today, out of this sermon today, that we would be a people who would become conscious about what we say and how we respond and when we respond. And so we ask today for your grace and for your mercy. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 